0: The Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. (laughs) This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM.
1: Introducing Group Captain Jason Eastie Easthope, recent Chief of Staff Air Combat Group. Eastie joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force at the age of 18 and began flying jets at only 19. In 2002, he transferred to the Royal Australian Air Force where he spent most of his time flying and instructing on the FA-18 Classic Hornet. Eastie flew F-18 Hornet O-2 in a single-ship display as a celebration of and fitting in to the aircraft's career of more than 35 years and 408,000 flight hours. His first operational posting was on the A4K Skyhawk with No. 75 Squadron, Royal New Zealand Air Force, based at Ohakea. During his first tour on Skyhawks, he exercised throughout Southeast Asia, flying with the Singapore, Malaysian, Thai and Indonesian Air Forces. In 1996, he went to the UK on exchange for three years with the Royal Air Force flying Jaguars. He conducted many exercises operating the Jaguar in Norway, off the snow, Germany, Denmark, Italy, France, Malta, Spain, Jordan, Oman, USA, Canada and also Alaska. Whilst flying with the Royal Air Force, he was required to conduct operations in support of UN and also NATO forces. In 2002, he transferred to the Royal Australian Air Force. Eastie has over 6,000 military flying hours, mostly in single-seat fast jet aircraft, and will pretty much fly anything with wings. Military jet aircraft flown include the F-A-18 Hornet, Sepcat Jaguar, McDonald's Douglas, A4K Skyhawk, BAE Hawk Mark I 1 and 127, Air Mackey 339C and Albatross L-39C. Eastie has commanded two fast jet squadrons during his career. He was CO of No. 2 Squadron, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, in the early 2000s, a Skyhawk squadron, which was actually based at Naval Air Station Albatross, Nowra. And, of course, No. 77 Squadron, RAAF Williamtown, 2018 to 2020, flying the FA-18 Classic Hornet. Eastie enjoys the opportunity to give adventure seekers a small taste of military or high-performance flying while conducting adventure rides in aircraft like the Strike Master L-39 Albatross Extra 300. He's also qualified low-level aerobatic display pilot and enjoys showcasing various aircraft at air shows around Australia. Eastie is happily married to Gillian, his high school sweetheart, and has adult boys. Unsurprisingly, in his spare time, his hobby is flying aeroplanes. Eastie, welcome and it's great to have your company. Morning, Gareth, and uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I hope you've had a, a chance to listen to some of the other interviews that have been conducted over the, the time. It's been absolute joy for me to learn so much about the Air Force in England, Australia, and also New Zealand. And you can you can bring us up to date on all three
2: countries. <laughs> I can. And yes, I have uh, had to listen to a few of the podcasts. And I just love the conversation that you have with some really interesting characters, right? That... Uh, that really get my juices flowing when they're talking about either military aviation or the experiences that they've had and, you know, those things that, you know, really anchor some of those key moments in your life. I just Mm. love listening to that. Uh,
1: Well, I've got to ask, why did you join in 1989? What was the motivation?
2: Wow, that's uh, that's going back a long way. So so if we just um, anchor on the motivation word for a second. So uh, as a young boy growing up in Rotorua, New Zealand, I, was, I would have been 14 or 15 years old. Didn't really think much about aviation up until then. I was just a normal kid. And in New Zealand, right, it was all about sports uh, oh. and mates and things like that. But I went to an air show uh, in Rotorua. And the New Zealand Air Force had deployed a few strike masters to my hometown in Rotorua. And they were doing an exercise there. And on one of the weekends, they opened it up uh, to the public, and we came out and had a look around. Um, and there's a couple of key moments that I attribute to pretty much getting the aviation bugs. And one of them was I was standing at the fence line at the airport, and a strike master, you know, you could almost reach it, right? You're pretty close to it. Mm-hmm. And in those days, you were allowed nice and close. It started up its engine. And it gave me that, that rumble in the chest as it started to spool up. And then uh, the engine lit up and was running. And I was standing right behind it. And I remember the smell of the uh, jet exhaust, like yeah. the kerosene, um, the heat from the exhaust. And I remember standing directly behind the tailpipe going, it's really hard to breathe it, <laughs> because it had taken away all the oxygen. It was hot and fuming. It was like, I just love this. And then a few minutes later, a couple of New Zealand Skyhawks arrived from Ahak here and uh, did a couple of beat ups up the runway, like low and fast. And I was I was awestruck, a at the spectacle and just b at you know imagining what it would be like to be in the cockpit. Mm, mm. And from that moment, oh, I knew that's that's what I wanted to do.
1: Mm. Well, you joined at eighteen. And the thing that amazes me is that you were actually flying jets at 19. That's only a year, HD. How did that happen?
2: I know. That was that was crazy. So I was in my um, last year of school. So in New South Wales, that would be year 12. Yep. Um, I'm a 17-year-old. I've, I've done the New Zealand Air Force pre-entry exams, you know, like the first step you do when you're going through recruiting. And uh, I passed all of those exams as a 17-year-old. And uh, the New Zealand Air Force went, actually, you you might have something we want. We want to send you to the recruiting screening stage, which is like a five-day camp um, where you'll do leadership exercise, speeches, exams, you know, medicals, site testing, and all the rest of it. So I go and do that as a 17-year-old halfway through my last year of school. And at the end of that, they went... Mate, you've got exactly what we need, except for one thing. You need to go away and grow up first because you are just so young. And I, I remember as a 17-year-old um, just saying, I can't go away and grow up. I, I need to do this now. Um, and so from the middle of that year in the middle of school through to the end of that year, I got a phone call from the New Zealand Air Force, still as a 17-year-old, a few months before my birthday, where they said, Right, mate, we're going to give you a go. You're a bit of a bull in a china shop and you've got a lot of growing up to do. Um, we want you to finish your last year of school, which occurred in December. And then in January, you're going to be on officer training in the Air Force. And if you get through that, you're going to start pilot training. So that happened all, you know, between 17 and a half and uh, not long after my 18th birthday, I started the New Zealand Wings course. And, uh, and, and that was, you know, when I started flying as an 18-year-old, I realised how young I was. Um, so, well, In what way? We're, we're just not being able to cope or it was all too much or what was well, the I, issue? I turned up as a, at a military Air Force base, given a uniform, you know, I'd ha- I had a haircut, wasn't really shaving properly, you know, because I was kind of wishing I could grow some facial hair at that stage. So <laughs> when they said I had to shave, I was kind of disappointed. But I turned up as, at an Air Force base surrounded by some really confident, professional Young people who had also joined, mm. but they are all in their mid to late 20s and on their second career. There were doctors, lawyers, you know, mechanics with trades mm. um, that had all joined the Air Force and were starting the Wings course with me. And, and here I was as an 18 year old, a life experience that was really nested around school, right? Because mm. there, there wasn't a lot of time to do much outside that. And that's where I realized I had a lot of growing up to do and a lot of life to experience. I found coping with the pressure actually quite natural, you know, that's probably part of my character, part of mm. my, you know, growing up in a big family, you know, competitive as a young boy anyway. So I found coping with the pressure manageable. But I, I certainly noted turning up on that first day surrounded by all these yeah. old people. And, and I call mid-20-year-olds old at that stage. Uh, I, I realised I had a long way to go.
1: I think it's a, a big compliment, is it not, easy to the, uh, the executive within the real, the New Zealand Air Force and the Australian Air Force, that they are able to recognise someone who has an innate, an apparent innate gift, ability, and then take them on and be prepared to, you know, bull in a china shop. Big deal. We're still going to invest in this person. So that's that's surely a huge compliment to the
2: executive above the young person. Then, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I can't single it down to a single person that, uh, you know, may have taken the chance on me, but certainly the organisation took a chance um, and they were, they were willing to point me in the right direction knowing I was going to break a few things on the way, hopefully not myself, um, and, you know, keep tapping me on the edges to make sure I stay pointed in the right direction and, uh, and give me a go. So that's not lost on me now. At sure. the time, I really did not know, right? It was just such a roller coaster ride you know, all this, inf- it's like drinking through a fire hydrant, right? So much information. I sure. really did not fully understand the magnitude of the opportunity. I was just like, yeah, right here, I'm going to be a pilot. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to be a fighter pilot too. It's kind of like, who's this 18 year old kid re- reckons he's going to be a fighter pilot. He's got to learn to tie his shoelaces and iron his shirt first.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, you, you now can do both of those and also fly a plane. Um, what was the, what were the steps from that nineteen year old now the nineteen year old to to actually then being fully accepted, fully trained, ready to go? What what the steps in between those two events?
2: Yeah, so pretty traditional um, recruiting and training pathway. So join the air force, do the officer training, you know, kind of known as the knife and fork course. But you know, all of those mm. uh, officer qualities that you need to get sorted out of the way, including a lot of the. Um, you know, history and protocols to do with the Air Force, but then straight into flying training. And the flying training that I did was CT4 initial and then onto the BAC-167 Strike Master, which was a jet trainer as the advanced phase of the wings course. Is that the equivalent to the Mackie in Australia? Very similar to the Mackie, yep. Similar generation, side-by-side seating, jet aircraft, very basic jet trainer. And then at the end of that, um, you will get, with your air force wings so you become an air force pilot but at the end of that course because i was at the top of that course i was selected to go to fast jet mm-hmm. and then i went from you know being a, being badged as an air force pilot to fighter training on the strike master and that ran for about three or four months where you just start a lot of you know combat style flying in a very benign and controlled environment And it wasn't until the end of that course, so uh, 19-year-old about four months post getting my wings, where I just started to learn, you know, very basic bombing and air combat, um, that, you know, I started to realise that I am in exactly the right place. Yeah, sure. Um, And that's where a lot of the instructors now started to look at me going, wow, okay, this, uh, this young kid, if he keeps learning at the same rate, is going to go somewhere.
1: I've got to ask a silly question, I suppose. Given the, at that stage in the late 80s and early 90s, given the, the size, the population size of New Zealand, how
2: big then was the New Zealand Air Force? Yep. so it was, uh, like, it was very, very small. And, I mean, it is a small air force still. Um, and I compare that, obviously, to a lot of other air forces that have been exposed to medium air forces uh, like like Australia. But only uh, two and a half thousand nested around the um, aviation capability that I was uh, that I was a part of in New Zealand. Tiny cadre associated with fast jets. Yeah. So we had, you know, we had to fight lead-in squadron, which was Number 14 Squadron, which only had about eight instructors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our frontline squadrons, the Skyhawk um, Operational Conversion Unit, Number Two Squadron standard-sized squadron with about 100 people, Um, and then number 75 squadron, which was the New Zealand frontline squadron, Mm. uh, where we had most of our aeroplanes, over a dozen, um, you know, 20 pilots and a squadron of about 150 personnel. But that was pretty much it. That that was the entire community.
1: And how does it compare to Navy
2: and Army in New Zealand in terms of size? Uh, A lot smaller. So Lots quite a bit smaller, you know. It's the it's the younger force out of the out of the trio. Um, it had very niche capabilities. So so when you're already a small air force and you have niche capabilities, um, you, you're now starting to get down to very small numbers. But the air force was the the smaller, uh, younger service, uh, which was you know part of our normal interim. Into rivalry banter between the services, uh, right, which is pretty it's standard.
1: Just, I'm sure it's the same in every country. Um, Absolutely. Just a few things I'd like you to expand on. Uh, yeah. The frontline tour with
2: 75 Squadron at Ohakia. Yep. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so that uh, that was probably my first, uh, you know, I'm a grown-up <laughs> moment, you know, for real, um, when I completed my Skyhawk conversion and got posted to the frontline at number 75 Squadron. So, all the trade craft um, wasn't known at that stage, right? So you had all the tools you needed to get the job done. Mm. You're now going to go into a squadron where the focus had shifted significantly from all of my experiences up until that point, because up until that point, it was about learning the the trade craft, surrounded by very experienced instructors, trying to pump as much of the trade into you before you arrive at the front line. And then from a Friday to a Monday, you go from a training institution now to a a squadron that rolls its sleeves up and gets the job done. And its focus was about being ready. Mm. And if we got the call, you know, you'd step out the door and and get the job done. And that was quite a significant mental shift from – the first few years of my Force career. Mm. Were there um, any overseas postings in that at that time? Yeah, absolutely. So we would um, exercise a lot through Southeast Asia. Um, yeah. So there was a lot of international engagement going on in that region, including Australia as well. And we would exercise with the Singaporeans, the Indonesians, um, the Malaysians on a regular basis. And whenever a New Zealand squadron would end up in Southeast Asia on exercise, if the Australians weren't there with us, then we would do something in Australia on the way there or on the way back. Sure. So, um, I did a lot of work with the with the RAF in those early years of my uh, skyhawk career.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've flown, you've exercised with uh, Singaporeans, Malaysians, Thai, Indonesian. You've really, uh, you're an international.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely my backyard, um, our near region, and. Uh, I've uh, I've met a lot of people exercised with a lot of different uh, capabilities, um, and you know, I've got some I've got some fond memories uh, working mm-hmm. in through throughout Southeast Asia and the northern end of, uh, of Australia, um, and it's you know it's like my second home operating up through yeah. there. Eastie, nineteen ninety
1: six to nineteen ninety nine, you're now in an exchange with the
2: Royal Air Force. Uh, <laughs> yep. how did that occur? <laughs> So I was uh, flying the Skyhawks in New Zealand at the time. In uh, 1996, I was a 25-year-old, and the opportunity for an exchange pilot with the RAF came up. And normally they would send an instructor. Um, but I, I put my hand in the ring anyway and and said, hey, I would like to do this. You know, a few people said, oh, you need to, you'll need to wait till the next time around because it's actually for an instructor. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, in the... Uh, in 1996, had uh, the opportunity to go across to the Royal Air Force to fly the Jaguar on a three-year exchange program um, where one of the Royal Air Force pilots would come to New Zealand, fly the Skyhawk for three years while I was over there, um, you know, flying their aircraft. And that's just part of, you know, A, maintaining the connection between the forces, but part of that, um, you know, fully integrating and, and being able to integrate uh, whenever we needed to the exchange program was part of that um, initiative. What, what was the, the mental
1: jump like? Because you're now flying with the oldest Air Force in the world and certainly bigger than either Australia or New Zealand's Air Force. What was the mental jump like?
2: Yeah, that's uh, you, you've jumped on something key there, Gareth. So um, just before I get to that, but going to another Air Force and flying another frontline combat aircraft, that mental shift was not that large because, you know, once you've flown enough airplanes and been around for a while, I couldn't say it then, but I can say it now, you know, an airplane's an airplane kind of thing, you know. It's like driving one car to a next. Um, once you've been flying a lot, uh, a lot of the it, – it's easy to transition. But the largest difference, and you've hit on it there, was just the, the history, heritage, the legacy, and the operational focus that the Royal Air Force had was a real eye-opener. Um, and I, abs- I absolutely loved being part of that environment. You know, the traditions um, mm. that we, we dabbled with on the edges, you know, back in New Zealand, we knew where they came from. But to get there and experience it firsthand um, and to see um, how important the roots were with the operational units that I flew with was, uh, was something I'll, I'll never forget. And- um, and- Sorry, go on. And, it, and it, it actually influenced and changed how I viewed, and became connected with things like the association and the history and heritage of certain units. Uh, once I'd done my Royal Air Force tour, um, you know that that was part of me forever. That that uh, that passion with with where we'd come from and who was involved. So
1: that has led you into a direction in the way you deal with people and the way you deal with the history of Australian and New Zealand Air Forces. It, it, it laid a foundation that you would
2: not have had had you not gone to England. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, And, I mean, I never took um, for granted the, the history and the legacy of units, um, but now I just have, you know, a, a real connection with, you know, the fact that you know, we are custodians of that capability, of that legacy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what what those have done before us was much more significant to me after that experience in the Royal Air mm-hmm. Force.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. You come back to New Zealand. Uh, you get involved, I believe, in an instructor's course. I think in 2000 you were awarded
2: the Low Level Aerobatics Award. <sighs> yeah, so... Um, uh, yeah, so I came back to New Zealand after flying the Jaguar on exchange and had to do instructor's course. It was like, ah, oh, okay, fair enough. It's like, it's like being forced to grow up, I guess. Um, so I did the instructor's course uh, back on the CT4, so flying a propeller aeroplane, mm. which was a bit of a uh, mental shift having come from um, jets. You know, flying frontline jets. Um, but a part of the New Zealand instructor's course right at the end of the course is you have to design your own aerobatics display as part of your training. And then all of the students on the instructor's course will fly their display in front of the base and the base will vote on the best display. Mm. Um, And then whoever wins the best display becomes the display pilot for the following season. (laughs) So I ended up, um, (laughs) you know, as a, as still as a, quite a young aviator at that stage, uh, winning winning the competition and um, being selected as the display pilot for the following season, which was a little bit funny about two weeks later because before I even started the season and my instructional career, I got a short notice posting into Australia, into Nowra, Nowra to fly Skyhawks. So I never actually got to, got to do the season Yes, but weren't you the CO of Number 2 Squadron you know in Nara? Yeah, I was. When I first got there, though, I went over as the flight commander and then the EXO, which is the ex- executive officer or the 2IC uh, yep. to the CO over there. Um, but I ended up being the CO um, before that tour ended um, when we actually closed down the capability, mm. which you, uh, you're already aware of, of, of what happened there. But um, the, the progress from flight commander through EXO to CO was... You know, quite traumatic because that was never intended. I was over there as 2IC. We were getting ready for the Skyhawk replacement, which was going to be the F 16, which -hmm. never turned up, um, which led to disbandment of the combat force. Plus, also during my tour, the CO was killed in an accident. Yeah, Um, I'm going to ask about that. Hence, I ended up with effectively a field promotion from XO to CO because Mm -hmm. of that incident. Yeah.
1: What was the incident, what you're able to tell us?
2: Yeah, so um, we were doing a two-ship formation aerobatic display practice sortie in preparation for the Avalon Mm Airshow. Quite a unique manoeuvre, the one we were practising at the time of the incident, which was called the Plugged Barrel Roll. So one Skyhawk is out the front, it's trailing the air-to-air refuelling hose, which looks exactly the same as the air-to-air refuelling pitches that you've seen from large airliner-type aircraft where the fighter plugs in. The Skyhawk could do that buddy-buddy between aeroplanes because it was a Navy capability that they used a lot. So we would plug together um, like we were air-to-air refuelling and then barrel roll that aerobatic manoeuvre close mm-hmm. to the ground. Um, so we were practising that just before the Evalon issue and got into all sorts of strife, um, nose too low, too close to the ground, um, where we ended up in a, you know, a deck-saving manoeuvre pulling away from the ground yep, where I yep. made it and um, my flight lead and the CO at the time didn't make it, uh, hit the ground, exploded and was killed. Rob, so yep. I mean.
1: Yeah, okay. That is sad. Um, all right. You've been in New Zealand. You're in the New Zealand Air Force. Come 2002, you transfer. Actually, even before I get to that, why was the Royal New Zealand Air Force based in Nara or the the second number two squadron? Why
2: was a New Zealand Air Force based in Australia and not in New Zealand? Yeah, good question, Gareth. We had uh, a small Skyhawk squadron, which was number two squadron based in Nara. It was our operational conversion unit, Um, but the other half of it's... Um, purpose uh, was to support the Australian Defence Force Mm -hmm. in force generation, preparation and exercises. And in the early days, New Zealand that that capability would deploy from Ahakia across to East Coast Australia, do the exercise and come home. But because we were doing it so much, we spent our entire lives on the road going backwards and forwards between Australia and New Zealand. So the decision was Um, to base the squadron actually uh, at Albatross in Nowra, do our operational conversion onto the Skyhawk there, and the rest of the squadron would do all of that ADF support tasking that I spoke about. So that's why it ended up staying um, over in Nowra, which was a great decision um, because we got a lot of work done with um, Australian Army, Navy and Air Force um, up and down the East Coast and across uh, in the West Mm -hmm. as well. So uh, that's why I was at Nowra at the time. And I was flying the Skyhawk on two squadron when the government announced that it was going to disband the air combat capability. Um, And that that, that was the genesis for the transfer.
1: So that plays a factor in coming to the Royal Australian Air Force. Was that an easy transfer? I I read somewhere that you had a New Zealand flag on the the shoulder (laughs) in one minute and the next minute that's gone and the Australian flag is there. The the only
2: difference, of course, being two stars, but be that as it may. Yeah, yeah. Um, So... The the fighter pilot in me, that was a very easy transfer because New Zealand didn't have any fast jet aircraft. Um, So I hadn't got that out of my system yet. So I I was going to go and fly fighters somewhere. So because I'd been flying in Australia a lot, I knew a lot of the Royal Air Force, uh, Royal Australian Air Force pilots. But because I'd also been on exchange with the Royal Air Force, they had also reached out and said, hey, Eastie, come back here and fly the Jaguar. We've got a position on the squadron for you. Um, so I was actually split between those two decisions, um, you know, which was the, the pilot, you know, um, in me trying to decide which one to do, but actually the, the family man, you know, with, uh, you're married, you're married married at the stage. Yep. So I'm married. I've got uh, a couple of young kids, um, the you know, the the lifestyle and the culture between New Zealand and Australia, very, very similar. So it, w- it was an easy decision from the from the family side. Um, and then when Australia said, hey, you see, come across and do some instructing on the hawk because we'll get a bl- bit of blood out of the stone, but very quickly you'll go and fly the Hornet, it, it was just a no-brainer, right? No it brainer. was just an absolute natural transition. Um, and, I mean, I, I didn't take the decision lightly, though. I actually... Went and flew various capabilities in New Zealand in the Air Force first. So I went and flew uh, helicopters for a couple of weeks. I went and did transport flying the C one hundred and thirty for a week or so. I went and did P three. Like I actually went and had a taste of the other capabilities, but there was nothing that was going to compete with that desire to be in a in a fast jet cockpit again. Um,
1: yeah, when when you drive a Sigma and then get into a, a Lamborghini, <laughs> it makes sense that you're going to go into the Lamborghini.
2: Um, I mean, my, it's my comfort zone, right? Sitting yeah. in a single seat cockpit, uh, just raging with your hair on fire. Do you still have that? Absolutely. Yep. I don't think I'll ever lose that. And, and I mean, I've got gray hair now, but um, I still absolutely love it. And it's that passion that has kept me going for so long because i tell you what, it's actually, it's hard work uh looks kind of glamorous in the movies, right? But it's it's hard work maintaining that level of proficiency. And I think, um, you know, the pathway that I ended up on through to the end of my Hornet career, having gone Skyhawks New Zealand, Jaguars in the Royal Air Force, F-18s in the Royal Australian Air Force, that change of pace and scenery mm-hmm. reinvigorated me, re-inspired me, and has actually added to the longevity um, of my fighter flying career,
1: as a fighter pilot, I, I can understand that mental agility and mental youth is important. How important is physical stamina uh,
2: in, in terms of keeping yourself fit? Yeah, it's it's as important because um, it's hard to explain how brutal the cockpit environment is physically as well as mentally. A lot of people talk about the, you know, the the mental capacity required to conduct fighter operations but they don't talk a lot about the physical demands. It is quite demanding. And if you're carrying a heavy helmet as well with a lot of the avionics and displays in there, you're doing a lot of dogfighting where the G-forces are high, it's quite punishing to the body. And over years and years of sitting in that environment, it does start to take its toll physically as well, you know, the back of the neck, the spine, those types of things. So you've got to be fit and healthy both physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. So
1: hence there really is a a cut-off date when you can no longer fly those F-18s or the F-35A now, whatever. There's there's a stop date. There is. So
2: it's not age. It'll be either a physical or mental point where you realise that you just can't keep up doing it.
1: Who does that assessment? You self-assess or you have someone that tells you?
2: Um, Hopefully it should be you coming to that realisation first and... Natural career progression will probably align with that anyway. Mm, mm. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's it's immediately obvious both physically and mentally if you're not keeping up, both to you and those around you. Mm. There
1: are two uh, flag issues that I want to ask about because you okay. were involved in them twice, the red flag Nellis. Yep. What, what, you were... Uh, I mean, well, when, you had a, you had two two goes at it, two thousand and eleven, I think, two thousand and eight, nine
2: thereabouts. Yeah, I've actually I've actually been to Nellis many many times over the years. Uh, to an exercise called Red Flag, which is the one you brought up, and and I think the reason that that particular exercise pops up, um, you know, in my narrative or commentary is because it is the most realistic peacetime training you can get. Um, it's it's. Well, and it's based out of Las Vegas, so let's just park that aside yeah, <laughs> and, and, and concentrate on the actual exercise. But it's it's one of those activities that is designed to expose aircrew to what it will be like in those first few missions in real combat. Mm-hmm. And it's about as realistic as you can get without shooting at each other, uh, both from uh, an air-to-air combat environment plus a ground-to-air, so things on the ground trying to shoot you down as well as things in the air. Um, and it's high-end, it's intense, um, and it's, it's basically designed to prepare you for combat. Um, it's also designed to integrate with other allies as well. Um, and it's one of those training environments where it's super intense in the air, it's realistic, and the camaraderie on the ground is is what you'd expect it to be like after combat as well. Mm. Um, it's just a fantastic training opportunity.
1: And the interrelationship between the various group allied groups that are involved in the red flag exercise, what is the the end result of the communication process between them all and how effective is it
2: as a... Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> you've touched on a quite a complex area. I could talk about this all day, but um, so the exercise itself, first of all, is high end. So all of the training and preparation um, to get to um, the top of your game is done before you turn up. So when you turn up, the game is on. Um, and Everybody brings the best of what they have, you know, from a the individuals with respect to their training pathway to being at the top of their game and also the capabilities that you have on hand that you will take into combat. And then you will integrate those into um, an integrated capability that will go downtown to get the job done. And you need to work out, you know, where your strengths and weaknesses are and ensure that you're maximising the effects that you bring to the table. And it's about, you know, fighting your way into somewhere you might be sent, kicking the door Mm. down, breaking their stuff, and then getting everybody home, right? Mm. Um, And unless everybody uh, brings their best – then not everybody's coming home, and that's what it's all about, right? Um, So this is where you get to understand not only your own strengths and weaknesses in a coalition environment, but you understand everybody else's. And once you exercise um, in a very uh, intense, kind of condensed and realistic environment, you then start to have confidence making rapid decisions based on the information Mm. presented to you. Mm. The United States Air
1: Force for example, has a thing called the Raptor. We have the F-35A. New Zealand has, England has, uh, India has, all different types of aircraft. If we are, this is obviously an opinion question, if we are a coalition, is the common sense factor not we all should be flying a similar or same aircraft as opposed, like, for example, I've been led to believe the Raptor is the pinnacle of the pinnacles at the moment.
2: But we don't yeah. have them. I see what you're saying. Yep. So, jack of all trades, master of none, is a term that comes up um, when you when you talk about specific aircraft capabilities. But let me use a different analogy to try and explain why you can't just have the one airplane. It's like it's like uh, say you want a boat, okay? Um, and someone says, "What type of boat do you want?" And you go, "Well." Um, On Sundays, I want to go water skiing with the kids and do a bit of wakeboarding. Mm. During the week, I want to do a bit of sailing, and then when I get the urge, I want to go and do some fishing. There there isn't one boat that does all of that. When you're talking about air combat capabilities, there isn't one aeroplane that does everything at a master's level. Mm -hmm. Um, When you talk about the Raptor, it is an air dominance master, absolutely. It will set the conditions in the sky, for other things to come and do other jobs. Okay, okay. Um, so it, it's about bringing all of those capabilities together and setting the conditions for each of them to do the job they were designed for.
1: Okay, well then the secondary question would be, in a coalition, language and cultural differences across the coalition, is that in any way, shape or form
2: an impediment? Um, so, So yes and no. So it's an impediment early on just as you get used to each other's A, language and B, capabilities and then understanding, you know, what each other are good at. Mm. So in the early days, you, you can find you've got to just slow down, you've got to crawl, walk uh, before mm. you can run. Um, but as, as you start to understand um, all of those strengths that the others bring to the game, and understand how all of those strengths link together, then you see the real power of the coalition. But you have to work together constantly to get through that early stage uh, such such that you're a well-oiled machine when the time comes.
1: New Zealand, England, United States, Australia, how closely aligned are they in the Air Force space?
2: Yep, there are... (laughs) Yeah, it's, it, you've singled out the the air forces that are the closest, right? Uh, culturally, um, the way we train, the way we fight, our expectations—you um, know—that that's about that's about as close as you could get it. I mean, you could throw Canada in there because I did a little bit of time in Canada as well. Yeah, but, well, I'll,
1: I'm going to come to that 2014, but I'm just yeah. concerned, cons- not concerned, interested. England, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, in terms of relative sizes, England's the biggest, but then when any one of those nations goes to the United States of America, I get the impression that people like you are, are amazed at the just sheer size of the United States Air Force.
2: Yep, it's it's yep, it's hard to not boggle at the sheer size of it. Um, it, it is it is enormous, relatively speaking, um, and it has amazing capabilities, uh, as well. So you know when you pack up your small air force and head over to analysis as an example, or you know into the Middle East and the coalition or whatever, and you see the US machine in operation, it is impressive. Um, and they have some really sharp uh, individuals involved mm. um, with their operations. and what's what's really neat though, is over the years when you when you exercise with your partners, and you end up on operations, you run into the same people. Mm. Um, and mm. those relationships built during peacetime are the ones that are critical during war. Mm.
1: My, my father, who was in the Air Force, no longer with me anymore, but he did tell the story once about the relationship between the United States and Australia in terms of when the United States brought a certain plane to Australia, the hangar in which the plane was to go wasn't big enough. So the Americans said, we'll fix that. They just knocked it down and built another one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Instant
2: decision-making. <laughs> Yep, absolutely. Um, You know, and they are very much focused on the end state and they just get the job done.
3: Yeah.
1: Go to 2014. Now, Canada. How come Canada? You're an executive officer in Canada. Who with?
2: The Canadians or with us? So so I was actually, um, so 2014, I was the XO of number three squadron, uh, which was the Hornet squadron at Williamtown. And um, this is a funny story as well, is uh, Ben been pretty much put down for promotion again, which had happened multiple times. Um, but in the, the seven years leading up to that point, I'd actually resu- removed myself from promotion contention because I wanted to stay in the cockpit and I wanted to fly jets. That, that, you know, that was clear to everybody. Um, and getting promoted would just lead to flying a desk. So I just put my hand up each year in the seven years <laughs> leading up to that going, uh, thanks for the consideration for promotion to Wing Commander, but no, thank you. And then in 2014, I put my hand up again and said, can I not be promoted again, please? I just want to keep flying. And the uh, the commander at the time went, yeah, nice one, Eastie. No, you're, you're going to get promoted. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. So... Um, Part of the promotion pathway through to Wing Commander involved doing staff college, which is the grown-up staff college, you know, learning about command and all the rest of it. So I put my hand up to do that course in Canada. So I went over to Canada, did their command and staff college in Toronto. Okay.
3: Okay.
1: Which is
2: tri-service. Took the family over there, um, you know, effectively went to college for 12 months. Um, You know, learning the tradecraft around um, coalition planning, you know, leadership, management, and all those mm. types of things you do on a on a staff on a staff course. Mm. What was Operation Olga? Um, sorry, I reckon that's that's probably typo. I reckon that's Operation Okra, um, which is one that you would have heard of with some of the others that you'd spoken about. Yes, um, know, and, yes. And, and Okra was the the operation over in the Middle East uh, where. The ADF got involved Mm -hmm. there um, 2014-15, and in 16, um, I was involved with with Operation Ocra. Flying. Uh, I was actually in the U.S. command center where we were effectively running operations. And the unique position that I had during that time um, was I had... Delegated authority from Australia for the employment of, of lethal force. So, I'll just let that sink in. So, the responsibility was significant. Um, exactly. Um, so it was a. So I was in a command centre. So what I can say about that experience is, it was the most rewarding non flying post I've ever had to do. In what way? A. The responsibility. Um, be the task and see the people that I was working with. Um, and when I say the people I'm talking also Australian um, air power practitioners mm-hmm. who were deployed as well in operations um, as well as the US and other allies inside the command centre um, where we had a, a quite a tough job to do as you, as you know based on how that uh, particular uh, conflict you know, ended up in towns and cities and all the rest of it. Quite, quite difficult. Um, but I, you know, I had quite a large responsibility as the target engagement authority, and I, I clearly remember very succinct guidance from a very senior commander here in Australia before I went across to the Middle East. Uh, he said, "Easty, I know you've got a job to do, and I know you do it well. Uh, my only piece of advice for you, from a national reputation perspective." is the bomb you don't drop is probably the most important.
3: Mm.
1: I've got to ask, just listening to you, Eastie, uh, I can hear and appreciate your passion for being in the cockpit. Um, However, you are no longer in the cockpit. You (laughs) occupy a pretty significant uh, executive position in the Royal Australian Air Force. Which of those two when you reflect back, will bring you the most joy, and why? So you're talking about my non-flying positions? Yes, your executive position. You're not in a cockpit. You're in, I mean, air combat group, group captain. Yep, yep. All those sorts of things take you out of the plane. But they all are important in keeping those planes in the air and keeping the Air Force an effective force. So which, in reflection, would you see has brought you and will
2: bring you the most joy? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, at the moment, Chief of Staff of Air Combat Group um, is, is the position that I reflect on the most um, from a staff role perspective. Um, some of that will be to do with the fact that I'm still very close to my comfort zone, the employment of air combat power, um, managing, mentoring and leading Extremely skilled uh, and exceptional humans, um, and also from a selfish perspective. While I was in that actual staff position, I had the opportunity to fly the Hornet um, for the very last time. Yeah, yeah com- In front of the. Oh, no, don't worry, I'm coming. To that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, but uh, that that'll be the position that I reflect on um, the most in recent time, but I'm actually in a journey now. And we spoke about this uh, earlier on before we started recording that I'm in a, I'm in a, uh, tri-service, you know, defense wide position here with DASA, Defense Aviation Safety Authority, where I'm actually starting to understand, explore, and, and, and get to know areas of defense that I just was not exposed to. Um, and that is opening my eyes to a a whole nother, you know, world. (laughs) um so you know in in a few years time i'll, I'll probably sit back and realize that um i'm in a position now where i can make a lot of difference uh, outside of the combat force you
1: see one of the for me an outsider looking in one of the great strengths for me for the royalist well for the new zealand air force and for the australian air force is that You start off as an apprentice, you start off as a pilot, you start off as a helicopter pilot. Wherever you you start, you start. And if you have a skill, if you show an innate ability in that particular area, then the Air Force culture (coughs) will track you and promote you as necessary to a point where when you reach the end of that career, you have made a contribution that keeps the quality of the whole component above average is that not a significant strength that we we possess in our
2: training? Yes, absolutely. Um, And, I mean, you've you've articulated that really, really well. And the Australian Defence Force and all the other defence forces that have been in are very good at identifying strengths, harnessing that potential, um, and then creating the conditions where individuals do great things. Um, and I see that over and over, um, during my career and, and you end up with a fighting force that just punches so far above its weight because of those preconditions that you've mentioned, um, that have gone on for generations to ensure that people understand their role. They know, um, those around them have got their back and the training that they have been exposed to instills the confidence in them to make those decisions. It's Mm. really, it's Mm. really awesome to see.
1: Would you say, because you've been in three different air forces, would you say that the Australian Air Force, given its size, punches well and truly
2: above its weight? It is the most amazing medium-sized force I've ever been exposed to, without a doubt. And, I mean, it's got awesome widgets, right? So the stuff it's got is modern, capable and amazing, but that pales into insignificance compared to the quality of the people. And you would have heard this from a from a lot of people that you've interviewed. The people are its strength, and that is without doubt. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: I have three final questions. Firstly, uh, you retired the F 18 Hornet.
2: I've got more retired aeroplanes in museums than I care to admit. <laughs> you know, Skyhawk, Jaguar, F-18. <laughs> well, what was that last flight, though, like? I mean, you, you flew it, didn't you? You were in it. You were the cockpit. Yeah, so it, it was just... Um, Luck in timing that I happened to be there um, when a the F eighteen was being retired. It required a display in front of the minister and others, you know, to acknowledge uh, the retirement. Mm-hmm. I happened to be chief of staff Air Combat Group at the time, but because number seventy five squadron, which was in Tyndall at the time, was our last serving unit, they were going to do the display, but they were locked it down due to COVID. I ended up having the opportunity to fly that last display and it also happened to be my last ever flight in the Hornet as well that was a significant moment that I was trying to just push to the back of my mind cuz I had a job to do but it wasn't lost on me that it was the merging of time in, you know in a cosmic way with respect to my career the significance of the moment sure um and having my family there so it was it was a big deal and <laughs> i did an interview straight after it and i kind of mentioned that i was You know, turning and burning close to the ground, you know, doing 800 k's an hour, pulling 7 or 8 g's with a tear in my eye at the same time because it was my last flight. It was, uh, yeah, it was something I'll never forget.
1: I don't want to dwell on this question, but have you
2: flown the F-35A? I have not. I've only flown the simulator, which, you know, based on modern simulators, is a reasonable taste of it. Um, so I haven't flown the F-35 and I add yet <laughs> to that. Yeah, but I mean well, yeah,
1: given your position, I'm sure you have the authority to, <laughs> to authorise it. I'm just moving, I said three last questions, that was yep. the first. The second one, uh, DASA, you're now in Victoria or you were in Victoria, are in Victoria, uh, looking at the establishment. That what is it how, will it? how will it improve things?
2: So Defence Aviation Safety Authority or DASA, I think the easiest way to explain it to non-military people is it's, it's the military version of CASA um, because a lot of people understand what CASA is. But DASA is um, the independent regulator that provides, you know, A, the framework and B, the oversight for defence aviation just to ensure we're meeting our obligations, you know, under the WHS Act. And and just, you know, on behalf of government, providing independent oversight of Mm. military aviation in Australia. So it's a it's a regulator role, quite different to sitting in the cockpit and, you know, lighting the afterburners. Um, but the experience that I've had up until now helps me understand the context of which the regulator is being immersed into to then understand where our strengths, weaknesses and risks might lie. Mm. Last question. How important has family been to your career? oh family to me is is everything so grew up in New Zealand I've got Pacific Island heritage um you know my, you know mum and dad brought me a college shirt gave me a haircut you know sent me off for a flying assessment as a 14 year old you know to support my aviation passion um and I've got a, a, a quite a large family so I've got four boys myself I'm married to my my uh, school sweetheart. So, you know, we met when we were 14-year-old kids at ATC. Uh, we've got four of our own. You know, I come from a family of four. My dad's from a family of 10 and my mum's from a family of nine, you know, and I've got so many cousins, you can't count them. So family to me is, uh, you know, it, it, it's that foundation that you, that you must have um, surrounding you. In order to a do a job um, like I've done over for over thirty years, but also you know to support and encourage achieving go- goals. I love family. It's uh, it's my it's you know it's my greatest asset.
1: Easty, you are the perfect ambassador for why Australia and New Zealand, or New Zealand and Australia, whichever way you want to say it are and should and remain so close to each other. For your contribution, for being such an outstanding uh, advocate for the Royal Air Force, the Royal Australian Air Force and the Royal New Zealand Air Force and what you have done and what you've achieved, you are the perfect ambassador and I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to chat with you.
2: And I thank you uh, also, Gareth. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thanks.
1: Globally... The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavor and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per and Ad Astra.
0: This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families, produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the wellbeing of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.